Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Can I just be honest with you? The Lord has not shown me a series that I'm supposed to be preaching through. I feel very uncomfortable with this. I love to plan. I, I am that detailed person. I cross on my T's, dotting my I's, and God, what's, what am I preaching a month from now? And so I'm just going to let you know, I do know what I'm preaching this morning, but I have no clue what I'm preaching on next week. And, and this may end up being a series. I don't know. The Lord hasn't shown me, but I, I'm excited as I bring these truths to you. God has been, during the week, touching my heart, and I am going to trust that God touches your heart as well. Now, I'm going to shift uh, keys, uh, um, direction here just a little bit. How many of you know who Stephen Curtis Chapman is? Raise your hand. Yeah, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Well-known pop star, singer, um, Christian music. And I want to tell you a very short story of his. A little, it happened a little bit over a decade ago. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife, excuse, they have three of their own children, uh, two boys and a girl. The youngest, his name is Will. And he had started an orphanage in the country of China. And he fell in love with three Chinese little girls and brought them home with him, and they chose to raise them. Um, Will, the youngest, was especially affectionate towards them and bonded so well. And one day, as Will, in his SUV, 18 years of age, was pulling into the driveway, the youngest Chinese little girl, his adopted sister, was so excited to see him, ran to greet him in the driveway. And as he turned into that driveway, she suddenly darted in front of him, and tragedy struck an 18-year-old boy and his entire family. She was rushed to the hospital, but she didn't make it. How does an 18-year-old young man deal with this tragedy of a lifetime? Emotionally, how does he walk through it? How does he deal with it? How can God step down into Will's life situation and somehow turn this tragedy into a triumph for his grace. How would God be able to do this? And so my next question is, the tragedies that has happened in your life, what can God do to step into that pain, into your suffering, and turn those tragedies around to bring him praise? And to turn it around to a triumph of his grace? How does God do something like that. I mean, he's God and I am a human. I believe the book of Hebrews has answers to some of these questions that we're asking. I just, before we read the passage today, you know, I did say Hebrews 4. That's where we're going to go, but Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is the first one we're going to look at. Just briefly, because it's kind of like a preliminary to get an idea as far as where this book is going and how it unfolds. I want you to know that Satan's goal is to completely destroy God's very good creation. So as a result, in the Garden of Eden, he introduced sin. Adam and Eve bit into that, literally. And consequently, not only did they sin, but the curse upon God's very good creation fell upon not just mankind, and not just the earth, 
but to the furthest reaches of this universe. Satan's goal was to destroy, is today, right now, to destroy God's very good creation. The second goal that he has is he wants to take every image bearer of God and alienate them from his or her creator, even Christians. We need to know this, that this is Satan's goal because the author of Hebrews walks us through this, especially in the very beginning. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Hebrews author in chapter 2 words it just a little bit differently. I preached on that just a few weeks ago. But as we understand that this is Satan's goal, I want us to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 in light of that. Follow me as I read from the NIV. We, you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, in what we have heard so that we do not drift away. I want you to underline, highlight that phrase, so that we do not drift away. He goes on in verse 2, for if the message spoken by angels was binding, that's in the old covenant, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Underline that phrase, highlight it, great, such a great salvation. I want to tell you about this great salvation, church, and it starts off first in the first two chapters, and I'm just going to give you a really quick overview of Hebrews, and then we're going to dig into our subject here and answer this question, how does God take a tragedy and turn it somehow into a triumph for you, not just for him, not just for his glory. Sometimes that, you know, okay, this is happening for his glory. It seems a little bit detached, but God wants you to be able to see God change the tragedies in your life truly to triumph for you in Christ. And so the first two chapters, the author of Hebrews, and note it's not Paul. We know that from the, just the next few verses here, especially verse 4. But it, 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 it's, it's obviously someone well-versed in the Old Covenant. And the, the author of Hebrews, he highlights and magnifies this supremacy of Jesus above all us, above angels, above Moses himself, above all else that we read of anyone else in the Old Covenant. Jesus is supreme because he is God And he establishes that, by the way, in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he took on our humanity. He had to, to accomplish this what? This great salvation. Chapters 3 through 7. In accomplishing this great salvation, we see him as this merciful and faithful high priest, is what we're going to look at today. And then in chapters 8 through 10, He unfolds for us because Jesus is not just the sacrificer, high priest. He is the sufficient sacrifice himself. He is the propitiation for our sins, the one who turns away the wrath of God that we so justly deserve. Chapters 11 through 13 is then our response of faith, that that this, this response of faith 
is not just a one-time thing. It is throughout our life, and he consistently throughout this letter talks about faith that perseveres. He's talking about faith that, says here, does not drift away through the hardening of our hearts, the deception of sin, so that we end up having a disobedient and unbelieving heart. It is this type of faith that when we apprehend it, we are called to remember the confidence that we had. It was a phrase that the author of Hebrews used several times in his letter. This confidence that we have, this assurance that we have, or that we had from the beginning. And I, I want you to have this sense of confidence, church, no matter what tragedy or difficulty or hardship or grieving you go through, you have this confidence in Jesus Christ. So having laid that out then, our focus, this whole letter has to do with this great salvation. And I think that our problem is we kind of view this great salvation somewhat detached. It's, it's something that's nice to look at, and then we set it back up on the shelf and we admire it from a distance. The idea of communion, however, is to cause us to take that thing down and look at it and treasure it again and again and again. And we, we are called to pay more careful attention to this great salvation that Christ has procured for us. For what reason? To what end, church? So we do not drift away. I would suggest to you, that Stephen Curtis's Chapman, youngest Stephen Curtis Chapman's youngest son Will, at age 18, went through a tragedy that so scarred him and marked him, and I'm going to come back to that. That the temptation was to do just this and drift away. God, where are you? Where were you then? Do you understand even a little bit with this pain that I have? I can barely sleep at night. I wake up with this knot in my stomach, and, and I have some good days, and I have some really bad days. As I was reading a little bit about this, uh, even yesterday, um, what was gone through those types of things? That tragedy has marked him, but he keeps pressing in, and he keeps persevering. This happened over a decade ago. So my question then to you is, how do you practically, rubber meeting the road, allow Christ to enter into your suffering and your pain, your tragedy, to turn it into triumph? So now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And I need someone to turn that clock back, by the way. More time, more time, more time. God has really burdened me with a number of things. I <laughs> Actually, five things. Um, we'll see how we do, right? Chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This is the, the persevering faith. This is that faith that God is calling this 18-year-old who I guess would be over 28 years old today, that's what he's calling him to. That's what he's calling you to. 
How? Why? For we do not have, here's the answer, church, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, we, we learned last week in chapter 2, uh, the last verse, what is it, 15, 18, I'm sorry, you, you look it up, that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Now, I want you to just think about that. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. You know, many times we think of this, Jesus, and I touched on this a little bit last week, so I'm not going to delve into it. As a matter of fact, that's what we spent our whole time last week on, but Jesus went through tragedies in his life. But those tragedies and our tragedies don't always overlap. And it would be easy to, well, you know what, God? You never accidentally killed a little girl. So how can you even relate to what I went through? How can you set an example for me? How can you now enter into my suffering and show me the way? So I am not going to say that Jesus experienced every tragedy that you went through. But he did experience every temptation. Now, follow me here. Let me take an example of uh, another example. A woman late at night finishes a class, stops by the student center to grab a latte before she heads back to her dorm. And it's now 1030 at night. And before she can reach the dorm, in a dark alley of classes, buildings, she is attacked, and she is raped. It scars her. How does God enter that? Now that this has happened to her, there are questions that she has. God, where were you in this? Why did you allow this to happen? And can any good, any good come from this horrific tragedy? She cannot rewind the clock and change the past. It is what it is. How do I move forward? Now, if she's not careful, and let me just say this. By the way, questions are not the problem. The questions that you ask God, those aren't the pro- that's not the problem. God is not intimidated with our questions. He invites our questions. Psalm 13, other psalms in which the psalmist is going through horrific tragedy, running for his life constantly, yet he knows that he's he's called to ascend the throne one day, David, and instead he he was running for his life. God, when are you going to fulfill that calling on my life? Because right now it certainly doesn't look like you are in the midst of my situation. Can any good come from this? I'm running for my life, God. It would be easy in asking these questions to arrive at the wrong answers. That's the problem. God, where were you? Answer, I guess you were nowhere. I guess you don't love me as much as these others, because look at that, that that doesn't happen to them. Where were you, God? Are, Are you just an emotionally distant God that sits on some wonderfully ivory throne 
And by the way, his throne is not ivory, but it fits, right? Are, are you so distant from me and you, you can't enter? In? Where were you? Why, why wouldn't you love me? You know, my dad would have stepped in and protected me if he were there. You hear that? These questions are real, but the problem now is what answers are you listening to? What answers do you embrace? That's the problem. Jesus, though his the, the struggles and the adversities that he went through are different than yours, I'm going to suggest they are just, listen, just as emotionally traumatic and even scarring, even scarring for Jesus. Though they're different, he faced the same temptations and he suffered in those temptations. But he arrived at different answers. How did he do that? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Last week I mentioned what I can only imagine was a scarring, emotional tragedy in Jesus' life. I mentioned last week that Jesus, the only conclusion we can come to was very close to his dad. His dad was a carpenter. He was a carpenter at age 12. He began to be tutored by his father, all Jewish boys, when they're not going in, in becoming a rabbi. And there's no indication that Jesus did that, though he certainly studied and memorized the scriptures. So he learned his father's trade. Yet when we, he's 12, when he reaches the age 30 and the gospel authors begin to describe his life events, even to the point of the cross, the question is, where is his dad in all of this? And the only conclusion, and I've not read any other suggestions, his father had passed away before he began his ministry. So can I ask you this? How would you personally feel if this man with whom you spent hours every day in his workshop patiently instructing you, helping you, guiding you through these difficulties working with wood and such, and, and, and then helping you, mentoring you, loving you? How would you feel when that man died? John 11, Jesus is standing before Lazarus' tomb. He knows he's going to be raising him from the dead. And yet, as others are weeping, he himself, I cannot help but imagine because he was God and yet he was so fully human. And the emotion of that tragedy, and he did not raise his father from the dead, and yet now he is about to raise his close friend Lazarus from the dead. God it still hurts that I lost this. He was my best friend. So I don't know if you have lost someone like that. I'm blessed that my dad had a very long life. He died, I think he was 80, maybe about 90 years old. That's a long life in my opinion. My dad and I, when we were younger, were close I got married. We kind of drifted apart a little bit. I moved to Arizona, Virginia Beach, now down here. But I love my dad. Jesus, 
with his dad. What a tragic loss. I'm going to say it this way. Jesus was emotionally wounded and scarred. He was, he suffered when he was tempted. I think sometimes we so idealize the deity of Jesus that we fail to understand his humanity. I, I'm not suggesting Jesus, and we just read the text that he didn't. He was tempted, but he never sinned. It is not sin to ask the question. What is sin is when we embrace the wrong answer. And we begin to live in that. And the author of Hebrews says that the deceptiveness of sin causes us to drift away. That did not happen with Jesus. He, I am sure he asked the questions. Here's the son of God. His very purpose was to rescue the world. But he couldn't rescue his dad. Okay, God, somehow, Father, this works in your sovereign will. And understand, Jesus was, well, this could really be mind-blowing. As God, he was, he was omniscient, but taking on human flesh, things were kept from him in that. Don't ask me how that works, but that's the divine becoming human. And in his questions, no doubt asked from God, why did you allow this in my life? What would have been wrong if my dad would have just stayed there throughout my life and guided me? Maybe for Jesus, in losing his dad, it forced him to spend even more time with his father, to hear his father's voice and be trained to listen to his father's voice. Jesus grew. Jesus grew in his understanding. Could not the Father, in his sovereign will, have orchestrated these events to accomplish that? But what Jesus did not do was say, Father, you must not love me. Father, you must not have the best intentions for my life. Because if you did, then this would not have happened. Jesus suffered in his temptations but he did not embrace sin. He walked in the truth. Can you accept that? Though My point then is that though Jesus and us, though we go through different atrocities, tragedies, emotional wounds, the Father, God himself, has an answer. We are then tempted to ask these questions, but how do you come out? Do you come out filled with anger at God, fear, wondering what is the very purpose of my life, and God, are you even in the midst of it? Or as Jesus, he submitted to his Father, and he accepted it, and he grew as a result in his walk, in his, his relationship with his heavenly Father. Now, I, I honestly will admit that I probably stirred up more questions than I've answered. I am aware of this. But the truth is, Jesus suffered, just like you and me, in these temptations. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. This is how deep it goes. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with, how did he do this, church? What two ways did he do? Listen to this. With loud cries 
and with, come again, what? Tears. With loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. His reverent submission. Now, some have proposed, well, this only happened in Gethsemane. And I'm not going to doubt that it happened in Gethsemane, but the main focus in Gethsemane is the cross, not that night. Though I would have to agree, Jesus was sorrowful even to the point of death, and he may very well have prayed, God, do not allow my life to end tonight without accomplishing your very purpose for me in the cross and the resurrection. I would not doubt that he prayed that prayer. If you read through the Gospels, the, the, the gospel writers, there is this sense of emotional trauma that night. But I'm going to suggest to you that that is not just the incident that the author of Hebrews has in mind here. It says, during the days, in the plural, in the days of Jesus, even before his ministry began, during the days of Jesus, in his life, It doesn't specify simply when he was in ministry, though I'm sure many times in ministry, as people sought his life before the day of the cross, they wanted to take him and and kill him. He he cried out to the Father. But I'm going to suggest to you that there were many days in which Jesus cried out to him who could rescue him and anyone from death to deliver him. Why Why did the Father hear his prayer and answer him? It tells us right here, because of what, church? His what? His reverent submission. Though Jesus suffered in his temptation, it was right there in the midst of that temptation and in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that emotional trauma and that scarring, that wounding, that hurt that's taking place here. He offers up loud cries, tears even. Can you remember the times in your prayers in which you have wept before God? The pain was so intense in your life? That's Jesus. His reverent submission then, when he is being tempted and he's wrestling with this, he I just can imagine kneeling before the Father, bowing his head, lifting his hands. You are sufficient, my Father. Not my will, but yours be done. I want your way in my life, and I am going to declare that this is good. And your intentions are very good. And I embrace that. I embrace what you desire, God, and what you are allowing in my life. My father passing away, I submit my heart to you, God. Loud cries, tears, suffering. I remember when I went through some personal 
at least at age 14, it was a tragedy in my life because I had a little God on the throne with a little G, and it wasn't Jesus. It was sports, and sports were everything to me. I found my identity, my sense of worth and value in sports, and if I did well in sports, I felt good about myself, but if I didn't do well in sports, I felt terrible about myself. Been there, done that, anything like that? You find your value in something other than what's eternal in God, and so I did. And I had just given my heart to Christ, and I'm just saying, Jesus, no matter, or God, my Father, no matter what it takes, do something in my life to make me more like your son, Jesus. And God heard that prayer. I broke cartilage in my knee. I'm not going to get into it because you, you know the story, so I won't bore you, but to say this, that I was tempted to say, God, why did you just destroy my life? Thank you so much. But I, I made a choice, and my mom helped me, and I was on crutches for four months asking these questions because I knew I wasn't going to be able to wrestle or run and any other sport. I wouldn't be able to. It was like, God, you, you just snatched it out of my life. I was on crutches for four months because the doctors didn't know what was wrong. I wouldn't even doubt if God just hid it from their minds because you know what, doctors? I need to do something in this young man's life and I need to allow him to experience this tragic pain because I have such good intentions that he has no clue about. But I need to bring him through this with loud cries and tears. And I need him to die to these things that have taken place in his life and, and, and are lifted up on pedestals in his life because they need to die. And I need him to look to me. So I'm going to allow this in his life. And I'm going to suggest to you that the tragedies, though they are a work of the hand of Satan, listen to this, Though the tragedy that you have faced in your life is the work of the hand of Satan because his goal is what? To destroy everything of God's creation that's very good and to alienate those who are image bearers of God from their creator. That's his goal in your life. And by his hand, he works and crafts these things in your life. But you see, we serve a God who is able to, to, even with his own son, bring him through these tragedies to birth what in his life? This reverent submission, this, this yieldedness to the Father. And it tells us throughout the Gospels that Jesus only spoke and acted, healed, according to what the Father showed him. That's how intimate he was with the Father. I'm guessing, this is speculation, and I can only imagine, at least in part, that was one of the reasons why God removed his earthly father. You now, son, are my very own. Jesus' ministry had not even begun. At his baptism, what did his father declare over him? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't preached his first sermon that I'm aware of. What did he do that was so amazing that the father said, in whom I am well pleased? Two really quick things. Number one, the very fact that he was his son that will never change. And number two, that he had already been walking in humble submission. I want that to be you and me, that humble submission that teachableness, that when we go through this tragedy like Stephen Curtis Chapman's son will, 
He's having to walk through this, at least for over a decade now. And I pray that he comes out stronger because he's asked the hard questions. And in reverent submission, perhaps not all the time, because we're emotional beings and tragedies stink. They hurt. But that as he comes, grows more and more in his faith in this. That's what faith is, humble submission. As he grows in this, he finds himself completely satisfied in his heavenly father. Completely trusting him. In chapter 4, verse, excuse me, yeah, chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, Jesus had weaknesses. As soon as he took on human flesh, and, and remember, the word became flesh. He didn't take off his deity but in some way, the God became flesh, retaining his deity and yet becoming fully God. He was now encumbered with weakness. And I don't just simply mean he hungered, he thirsted, he had to go to the bathroom just like the rest of us, you know, but rather that he, he could be emotionally scarred. He could go through trauma and it would hurt deeply. It says here, he is not an unsympathetic, he, he is a sympathetic high priest. God the Father had to allow him to go through these tragedies, emotional traumas, so that he would become this sympathetic high priest. That We get our word sympathy from this Greek word here, by the way. Sim meaning with, pathos meaning passion. Are you familiar with the phrase passion week? That doesn't mean the week that Jesus was really passionate about something. Because that word passionate is emotional suffering. You know, many times, and, and I, I don't mean to discredit Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, in any way. I love the movie. Some stuff in there, I, I, I want his Catholicism really showed, okay. But he did highlight this concept of Jesus suffering. And the focus, though, was on only what we can see and kind of read between the lines a bit as far as, as, far as Jesus' physical suffering. Crown of thorns nails through his feet, his, his hands and feet, the, the sword through the side, um, the, the, the lashes that ripped his back apart. And as you're watching this and you see the blood and the mopping the blood up on their hands and feet, you just think, wow, this is what he went through for me. Can I just take you one step? It's a big step. One step further. The greatest tragedy, though, that Jesus endured on the cross was not the physical suffering. It's what I'm going to call the suffering of his soul. I don't know any other way to put it. How does God feel who has never experienced sin or guilt, not one, endure the billions of sin and shame and guilt being placed on him in that space of three hours in which the earth became dark? 
that is beyond my understanding. I cannot comprehend that. My God enduring. I, I, I have trouble enough, church, dealing with the shame and the guilt of just one sin. Are you with me? And he took all of my sins and all of yours in this room and billions, I hope, billions of others, and he took them upon himself and he suffered for them. That is beyond physical suffering. Jesus endured this pathos, this passion, this suffering for us. So now he is sim. Pathos, sympathetic with us. He now can enter into my suffering and say, been there, done that. And his heart breaks for us. It goes on to, in the next chapter. No, it's talking about the high priest, the earthly high priest. And church, I do have my eye on the clock and I'm going to do my best. But in, in verse two, I know he's talking about the earthly high priest, but he says he, referring to that earthly high priest, but understand though he's talking about the earthly high priest, he needs us, he needs the listener, the readers of his letter to hear Jesus in the midst of this. This is, this, this is an earthly high priest, this is Jesus. And he says he is able to deal gently, underline that word, highlight it, circle it, gently with those who are, listen, ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. See, Jesus, we just learned Jesus was subject to weakness. He endured those weaknesses. In the midst of those weaknesses and emotional scarring, he suffered temptation. We know how he fared, though. Not only did he leave us an example that we follow of reverent submission, but now we are learning he can step into my pain and my suffering. And in asking these questions, he can lead me to the right answers. These answers are rooted in the truth of who God is. And that's why he says he's gentle with those who are ignorant, those who are wrestling with truth. Where was God? Is God even loving? Maybe God's loving to others, but maybe it's possible that I could sin so much that God would stop loving me. Have you ever asked that question? Have I maybe sinned so much that God has turned his back from me? that somehow I will never be able to walk in his grace again. Maybe I'm one of those who make it to heaven by the skin of their teeth. God's truth, though, is firm on this. I'm going to get to it in just a minute. I'm just going to say here, his love endures forever. You know how long that is? He is a faithful high priest. In other words, he's a keeper of his promises. If he says, lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age, guess what, church? He will be with you, and he will not reject you. He will not turn you away. He will carry you, as that you know, poem, Footprints, says. He will carry you in the midst of your tragedy and emotional loss. This is the sympathetic high priest that we have. But you see, when we are ignorant, when we fail to see and apprehend that we may have learned about it in Sunday school and heard the preacher preach it 10 times, but it's almost as if we get in this fog in the midst of this emotional distress, and it's as if we just sometimes throw the truth out the window. 
Our emotions just want to toss it out and say, yeah, whatever, right? And that is being ignorant. Jesus is gentle with you right there. When you just want to toss every truth that you learned out the window, he's gentle with you. But when we do that and toss that truth out the window, we begin to go astray. And he calls us back. I'm not going to just say he calls us back, church. This is what he's going to run after you with a reckless love. I think we sang a song about that, didn't we? And he will pursue you like, not, like the, the, the one out of the hundred. He will pursue you to win you back. That is his goal. Because the devil's goal is what? to separate, to alienate you from God. So my God, because he loves you infinitely, will pursue you with a passion, an emotion, a, a striving after, because he does not want to lose you. So pay more careful attention to this great salvation that you do not drift away. In the midst of your tragedy and the questions, the very real pertinent questions you ask, you have a gentle high priest who wants to win you every day, every tragedy, every question. That's his goal. He wants to win you. And he will pursue you with reckless abandon. Now, I, I need to wrap this up. So where am I? Chapter 4, verse 16. The point of what he is leading us to right now is this throne of grace. Give me just five minutes, okay? Five minutes. I'll do my best. With understanding this great salvation that we do not drift away, the purpose of this in the high priest and the sufficient sacrifice is to bring us now to the throne of grace where we will find both grace and mercy. We can actually have confidence because he is merciful and faithful. We can therefore approach this throne of grace and come boldly before. You know the temptation is when we start asking the questions and we start rejecting the truth, being ignorant, and drifting away, going astray. That word going astray, by the way, has a nuance to it. It's literally something. Can you still hear me? Okay. I thought I had broken this. It literally means that something out there is acting upon me and deceiving me and pulling me astray, but my heart yields. So I am making a decision, but I am being pulled. I'm like a hook in my jaw. I have bitten into the bait of Satan, and I am now being pulled and led astray, but I'm complying. That's the significance being led astray. And the beauty of this is that Jesus sympathizes. You know, when my kids want something that they're not quite sure dad is going to say yes to because I am so good at saying no, they will many times go to their mom. They know that their mom can be one, generally, not all the time. She surprises them at times. But dads, you know what I'm talking about? And they'll go to the mom, 
And then they'll ask the mom, and mom says yes, and then dad later finds out. But because she's more what? Sympathetic. Oh, yes, I just want to do that for you. I want you to be happy. I think that could be really good. Now, I'm probably thinking about 10, different, 10 other different things why it may not be good, but I might say no, so they know to go to their mom. My wife, many times, she knows what they're doing, and she'll say, you know what, hon? I'm not sure. What? You didn't say yes. I think it might be good for you to go ask your dad. No! Ask dad! He's so good at saying no. What do I do now? <laughs> please, mom, please, you know. But we have a high priest who is sympathetic like my wife. Yes, father, I've been there. I have been through that tragedy. I know what they're going through. The temptation is so hard. Listen to their pride. Listen to their prayers, God. They're boldly approaching, and they've got this high priest. And I just want to say yes. I'm going to lead you in this path of righteousness. Just come on, follow me. Right? We have this sympathetic high priest. We know who to go to. But we have a sympathetic high priest. He sympathizes with us, but he does not reject us. Man, this this is another sermon in itself, and I'm going to try and do it in 60 seconds. I want you to think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he just waxing poetic? Did it just sound really cool? My God, my God, why have you, you know why he said that? He was quoting Psalm 22.1, I understand that. But you know why he said that? The sins of the world, when the world turned, turned dark from 12 to 3, this, the sins of the world, yours and my sins, were now being placed on his son. The father didn't just turn away and do this. Let me, and, and, and this I do not understand. The father abandoned his son on the cross. Sin could not be in his presence. But I know this, though he was abandoned on the cross, my scriptures tell me he was not abandoned in the grave. Jesus experienced rejection from the Father who loved him from all eternity while he was hanging on the cross because he did it for you and me with my sins and yours. I don't understand this. He who knew no sin became sin for me. I don't get it. And he experienced rejection. You know why he experienced rejection? Remember propitiation? He experienced that rejection so that you would not have to. Do you see the implications of this? He endured that rejection of the father because the father didn't like him. But he was paying for my sins so that I would not be rejected. So that now, right now, regardless of how heinous I think my sin has been, and I'm confessing to the Father, I can boldly, with great confidence, come before his throne of grace, knowing he will not reject me. Because Jesus already paid for that rejection. Do you see there? That is amazing grace. And I'm just going to close with this. Okay, it says 12.05, but I'm gonna, that has that gives me at least 60 seconds, right, before it turns to 12.06, right? And I asked for five minutes. Th- this, is, this is so amazing, church. Very quickly, very quickly, turn to Galatians chapter 6. 
You may not have seen this before. Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to do that too because I want to read it right. Galatians chapter 6. Come on, Mike, turn fast. You got 30 seconds now. Okay, I might go past 30 seconds, church, forgive me. And he says this, verse 17, finally. Never trust a pastor, by the way, when he says finally, right? But we can trust it because it's got. there's only one more verse, verse 18. That's the end of the book. So verse 17, this is his concluding remark. He really means that this is it. Finally, listen now. But no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The Greek word there is stigmata. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church got a hold of that word, stigmata, and oh my goodness, you're bleeding. That must be from the very blood of Jesus. The idol, the sorry, statue is bleeding. That's the stigmata. That's the manifestation of Jesus' suffering. That's not what Paul is getting at here. If that's in your mind, just erase that. Completely wrong, completely off course. This is what Paul is saying. And we can, we, I hope we can identify this. Jesus, excuse me, Paul indeed suffered when he proclaimed the gospel. When we suffer, it is Satan attacking us and by God's grace, him triumphing. There is no difference when Christians suffer, whether it is from proclaiming the gospel or simply seeking to live my life to honor Christ. Tragedy still happens. Shipwrecks three times, one a night and a day out in the sea, Paul tells us. And by the way, there was another shipwreck that Luke records in, in Acts 27. So we went through four shipwrecks. God, where were you? Did, was he shipwrecked because he was preaching the gospel at the time? Probably not. It was just a course of life. The marks that he bears in his body wasn't just because he was proclaiming the gospel like at Lystra and they stoned him. It was going through life as a follower of Jesus, and tragedy strikes. And now he says, I bear in, it's like he's boasting. I bear in my body the stigmata, the marks of Jesus Christ. I have gone through just as Jesus says, I've gone through the sufferings, this this emotional trauma of life, and I want to show them off. These scars that I have from all of these hardships that really stink, and I'm going to show them off. These are the marks. These are stigmata. These are the scars that I bear on my body for Jesus. And he lifts up his scars to bring triumph to God's grace. Do you see that? So as we learn in in reverent submission, as we're going through in this emotional trauma, we're asking the questions, where do we come up? Do we drift away or do we press in, church? That is the question. Jesus did not. He did not drift away. He pressed in. He persevered. He lifted up his scars as triumphs of the Father's Can you receive that? Can you do that? Can you join me as together, regardless of our tragedies, we have been through many the the similar temptations to drift away. But we're making the choice, I'm going to take this scar, and I don't understand it all, God, but you can somehow bring such glory to your name, and you can, this can be, this hardship in my, my life can be a display of your grace. 
church, can you stand with me? Maybe some of you today, you really identified with that passage that said, and Jesus turned to his father and with loud cries and tears, with prayer and petition, offered them up to the one who could save him from death, the one who could save you from drifting, the one who could take your scars and turn them into triumphs of his grace. If we could just kill the lights, you can either come up to the altar here. We would love to pray for you. You can kneel where you're at right now. But some of you need healing. Some of you have been asking the questions and he is saying to you by the Spirit of God, can you in humble submission kneel before me? The Father's asking you. Loud cries, tears, whatever. Offer them up to him and allow him to do something so amazing to display his grace in your life. Can we pray right now? Gracious Father, your goodness is so beyond our total understanding. It leaves us with questions that we wrestle with from the hurts in our life that have scarred us, that have marked us. And I just pray for every single person in this room who is there right now or who has been through this and they still have not come out the other side and they still have the questions and they still have the doubts and they're wrestling. Father, take those scars, take those wounds, enter into their pain right now, God, and speak truth, the truth of your love truth of your faithfulness, the truth of your mercy and compassion, the truth of your sovereignty. You have not abandoned them in their weakness, but that your heart is turned toward them as the merciful, faithful high priest. Father, would you give us that heart that is surrendered to you. And would you now enter our pain and heal? God, heal. Restore. Restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Restore everything that the enemy has stolen from us. And the truth is, God, we've given it to him. And some of it, Lord God, he stole from us and it wasn't our fault. It was a tragedy that happened to us. So now, God, we are saying, heal me, God. Take this tragedy. It's marked me for life. And somehow, display your grace. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't need to. But I'm asking you, God, display your grace in my life. Please, God. I'm letting, I'm allowing you, I'm crying out, please do this. When I stand on this truth, God, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. You do not change. Ever. In 
Jesus' name.